Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 109. I'm your host, Nicholas Eaton Clark. And this week, we explore one of the darker aspects of arcana and academics, specifically the dark art of fundraising with Once Master by Pat Bowne. Pat missed graduate school, so she made up her own university, the Royal Academy of the Arcane Arts and Sciences at Osith, where battling your demons is more than a figure of speech. Folks at the Royal Academy have been suffering through meetings, attending ill-fated conferences and pursuing their research into denizens of the netherworld ever since. Fans of academic satire can follow them through three novels worth of adventure and a variety of reissued novellas, either individually or in the collection Once Master and Other Stories from Osith. The best place to keep up with all things Osith is the Royal Academy's website via the link in our show notes. Her story is read for us by Dan Kelly, an artist allowing the universe to deliver his wildest dreams. Other than a high school diploma and a few random certificates for esoteric skills like steadicam operation and freediving, Dan is giddily sans credentials and credibility. Born just before all those iconic Americans were rubbed out, he now thrives at the northern edge of the USA, amidst paranoid prepper enclaves and socialist sleeper cells. Dan likes movies, and with a little luck, he'll be releasing his first open-source-inspired featurette, the post-apocalyptic romantic comedy Daughter of God, sometime in the late summer of 2016. Learn more via his website, also in our show notes. And now, let's brave the hallowed halls of higher education with Once Master. When William Harrison Grassiel came into work at 4.30 in the afternoon, looking as if he had aged 20 years overnight, his suit hanging loose on a wizened frame, his secretary wished him good day and went back to her typing. Grassiel was offended. He had never been late to work before. He had never come in with a hair out of place. He deserved better from his secretary, he thought. She should make shocked noises ask after his health, give unsought advice. She should stop him as he went into his office. 
I'm sorry, she should say. I don't want to intrude, but... Oh, by the way, said his secretary, a package came for you. I put it on your desk. A package was exciting, even to someone of an age and station that begged for unsolicited, meaningless packages. This could be the one from someone who mattered, the one filled with treasure rather than advertising information. Indeed, it was too small a box to contain flyers. The package was the size to hold jewelry, perhaps a tie tack with some charity's logo on it, or a refrigerator magnet. But it was wrapped in brown paper and addressed by hand in a clear, old-fashioned feminine script. When Gracile opened it, he found a sheet of paper wrapped around the box within. A thank you for last night was written on it in the same hand. I'm sure you'll know what to do with it. The note was unsigned. Gracile opened the box, and it was a tie-tack indeed. A silver tie-tack, with a moonstone set in it. A muted rainbow swirled through the stone, restless and demanding. He looked the paper over for watermarks or clues and examined the box carefully. And then he leaned over the tie-tack. Absurd! Such caution for a tiny piece of silver! And touched it with one finger. And if his secretary had been there... Even she must have been perturbed to see her employer become, in an instant, twenty years younger, thirty pounds heavier. When Gracile turned to look out the window, he saw his outline reflected over the Royal Academy's buildings and fall leaves, the outline of a man in his prime. He closed the box and put it in his pocket. When William Harrison Gracile had joined the Royal Academy of the Arcane Arts and Sciences as development officer— he had insisted on an office overlooking the campus. He had told the president that an enchanter couldn't work without an eerie. What the eye doesn't see, Gracile had said, the heart doesn't yearn after. And as yearning after things was his job, that had been argument enough. When Gracile stood at the window with his back turned to the city and the suburbs behind it, he looked north into the past. Far to his left lay the undeveloped part of the ley line the river of magic that tumbled down a chasm at each end of the Osith Plateau and filled the valleys below with mists and wonder. Built squarely on the ley line, to west and east of Gracile's gaze, the two great castles of the academy, magic's fairy tale palace and wizardry's squat gray towers, glared at one another with arrow-slit eyes, remembering the mage wars of old. Outbuildings clustered around them, clambered up their walls, pushing to get near the line. Between the castles rose the gargantuan modern complex of Saucery's Towers and Teaching Hospital. The three schools lay in a narrow band along the line, piled high over its power, and beyond them Gracile could see the tops of trees and the tiniest bit of roof of the low alchemy building. When he looked across the quad to that reef of buildings, Gracile did not see the modern academy and its staff. He saw the magicians of old, sallying forth down the ley line with staff and pack, Wizards in their red gowns clustered around half-finished buildings, girders lifting into place at their command. Black-clad sorcerers slipped past, their satchels full of nameless items. It was easy for him to believe, then, that the Academy needed a new wizardry center. A field station for celestial mechanics, six dozen dryad traps, new gold plating in the pentarium, and the moat around the magic building dredged. He could believe these things so much that his very longing for the perfect academy would cast its spell over alumni, donors, legislators. That was enchantment. When it was dark, the window turned into a mirror. Gracile could check himself and do touch-ups, making sure his nose was as straight and his eyes as gray as they should be, that he was still the picture of a successful administrator in his early forties. He could spy on whoever was entering his office and know their names before he turned around. 
Even in June, it was dark enough by eight for him to see the vice president for finance come through the door and turn to close it. The VP finance was a sturdy man, red-faced and white-haired, with a great beak of a nose. His reflection looked more solid than Grisil's own. Are you ready? Grisil asked. No, well, I am, but you're not. The dean of wizardry wants to see you before the meeting. No, said Grisil, in dismay. Are you letting him talk to the trustees? The only way I can keep him out of the trustees' meeting is to let him talk with you, said the VP Finance. Grisil refocused his eyes and looked across campus at the Magic Building's towers. The more I see of him, the less I want to get him a building, he said. You know that. Don't get temperamental on me, Bill. You have to have all the arguments before you see the trustees. They have to be able to say you presented them with evidence. I can't have the Dean of Wizardry going around telling people you've never heard the arguments in favor of this building, but you convince the trustees anyway. Yeah, I'm only supposed to do that to donors, said Grisil. <sighs> well, show him in. Get it over with. The Dean of Wizardry was nothing like the red-robed powers of Grisil's fancy. Talking to him was like being eaten by a long, slow snake, the kind that moved you down its throat with infinitesimal sideways motions of its jaws so that your head was swallowed and dissolved while your feet still dangled outside. In less than ten minutes, Grisil had to convince the board of trustees that he could raise millions for the man's building project. Yet with every word the dean of wizardry inflicted on him, Grisil's enthusiasm for the task dwindled. He looked out the window, therefore, and thought about how much he wanted the dean of wizardry to be quiet, to go away, to fall off the tower to a flat and silent death. He thought about how much he wanted to go home and sit under the tree in his backyard, drink a beer, and read the evening paper. He fortified himself with these images, and when he finally left for the board meeting, there was all about him the glamour of unfulfilled desire, the slightly haunted beauty that made people associate him with high and noble causes. The trustees met in a warded boardroom. They wore personal wards as well, and these always amused Grisil. No ward was proof against enchantment which drew its strength from human longings, and the trustees had plenty of these, after five hours of meetings. We agree the wizardry building is out of date, said the president of the board, but even if the wizards built it themselves, we can't commit the academy to this kind of outlay for materials without a significant initial donation. Even a challenge grant would give us something to start with. A silent fundraising campaign, said Grisil. Then we can start a general drive in the fall. That soon? Do you have any donors in mind? Always, smiled Grisil, a man who knew what he was doing, a man to be trusted. Just say the word, and I can have a meeting with one before the week's out. How straightforward. Trust me, said Grisil's steady gaze, his business-like gray suit. It was Grisil's job to make magic seem respectable, and he did it well. He looked just enough younger than the trustees to make them feel pleasantly superior, inclined to let the boy try his hand. Trust me, said his posture, his patience, his eager silence. Trust me, so I can go home and read my paper, so I can put my briefcase down in the hall, hang my coat up, take off my shoes and loosen my tie, pour a beer into a tall, cool glass and take that first sip, feel it foam across my tongue. Ah, said the president of the board of trustees. I think that's reasonable, don't you? Don't try to charm a charmer, said Mrs. Zintz. I've studied enchantments since you were a gleam in your father's eye, young man. Sugar or lemon? Sugar, of course. Grisil had never been in Mrs. Zintz's home before. The house built of dreams, people called it. 
at least people who had never been invited in. While she poured tea, he scanned the room, looking for any signs of illusion. The Zinses were the richest family in Osif. Dreams from the Zins factory were in every drugstore, next to the sleep aids. But it was a questionable industry. Selling dreams was rather like selling narcotics. Gracile had expected the house to betray some lapse of taste. The room was coral-colored, full of sunlight, its colors and fabrics worn soft. Tall windows looked into a garden glowing with roses. A fire burned in the fireplace beside them, its flames almost transparent in the light. It all set off Mrs. Zintz perfectly, making her look twenty years younger than she really was, a gentle and dignified lady. Her hair was silver, her skin soft and pale and powdery. What did it feel like? Gracile wondered. Was her glamour strong enough to fool touch as well as sight? I wouldn't think of trying any cheap tricks on you, said Gracile. I know when I'm outclassed. He smiled an honest smile, and thought his hair into just the suggestion of a forelock, his head into just the suggestion of a bashful nod, his tweeds into just the suggestion of a loyal outdoorsman, rough and honest. Mrs. Zintz gave him a sharp look. You may think I don't know what you're up to, but I do, she said. Not that I'm not enjoying it. While you're at it, flatter my looks and tell me why I should buy bricks and boards for these low-class wizards, who aren't even intelligent enough to recognize how low-class they are. That Dean did not impress me at all. She bent forward confidentially. Her eyes sparkled. The room's colors looked even softer through the steam from Gracile's teacup. It was a calm place, a place where one could lie at ease and listen to the wind in the garden. Looking at the fire, he could imagine the best of fall outside. Leaves the color of those flames blowing past the glass on a wind the color of steam. He would like to see that, and to see cold spring rains beating against the windows and turn away from them to this warm corner. While you're at it, said Mrs. Zintz, tell me why you've taken up with those people at the academy. You can't make me believe they appreciate you. I'd prefer it if you told me why you're asking, said Gracile, leaning back. Do I detect an offer? Indeed you do. My late husband's company needs a lobbyist. Besides myself, of course. I've never considered it, said Gracile. I've never thought about selling dreams. This was a time-honored enchanter's technique. The lie direct. And Gracile knew he did it beautifully. The statement and the look both serious enough to be taken as true, but a little more intense than truth warranted. Done properly, it left the hearer no choice but to believe or to join the enchanter in a closed circle of the people who knew what was being said. Trust me, it said. Only you and I know what's really going on here. Mrs. Zintz looked back at him through the steam, and her white hair gleamed. She was erect and slender in her old-fashioned green gown, such as enchanters wore when they were creatures of mystery, Gracile thought the clothing of a time when people asked enchantment to carry them out of themselves, to show them something they could remember and long for all the rest of their lives. If he only reached out, that skin would feel like velvet or something even finer. Her eyes were the color of dark honey. What a lovely liar you are, she said. Does anyone at the Academy respect you for it? Well, charm me, young man. Charm me out of my money for a bunch of silly wizards who think charming donors is beneath them. You'll get them the money, and they'll say, Thank goodness he's willing to do it, because I could never lower myself. But then, enchanters have no standards. The fire made a whispering sound, 
and a bird sang. I can't hear any engines, Grisil thought. A miracle here in the city. This was what it sounded like a hundred years ago. Here in this room, a hundred years ago, enchanters would have gathered. They would have spun marvels. They would not have made enchantment respectable. They would not have worn suits or flattered businessmen. Do you think modern enchanters have no standards? I think modern enchanters have no imagination, said Mrs. Zintz. People, as a group, have no imagination. It's small loss for most of them, but enchanters are meant for greater things. What a pity that we let people like that dean of wizardry dream for us. What do you dream of, Mr. Grisil? I would never set my dreams up against a professional's, Grisil said smoothly. Mrs. Zintz sat back and watched him, and he watched the fire, and thought about answering her question. I dream of momentary things, he might have said to her, of things seen in a flash and gone when you turn around, the golden bird flown out of sight before you can quite see it, sparks flying upward through twilight air, the green flash you might see cross the sky once in a lifetime, just at that moment when the sun sets into the sea. Grisil dreamed of falling stars, and the smooth circles on water after a fish has jumped, and all the beautiful things that go away. It isn't restful to dream such dreams. A night spent chasing them is wasted. We all dream of home, said Mrs. Ince. We dream of a place where what we are is right, where what we can do is the right thing. Don't think it's easy making dreams. People come to me for what they can't imagine about themselves. People who've been told they're wrong so often, they can't even imagine being right. People can be fools even in dreams, said Grisil. Not in my dreams, said Mrs. Zintz. It's a big world, Mr. Grisil. There's room in it for all of us. We can all find our place in it, if we can once see ourselves truly. And this, too, was an enchanter's trick, though it could only be used when the victim was already mazed, confused. This rhetorical assertion that only a churl could protest against, but only a fool could believe. Manners demanded that the listener submit to the enchanter's will, join the circle of those who agreed to be agreeable. No, said Grisil, struggling to his feet. There are people without a place in the world, but you and I are not among them. You have your company, and I have the academy. Mrs. Zintz smiled. My, she said, what a very complicated statement. But Grisil knew better than to explore himself under her guidance. The old lady's spell was thick around him here in her home. The room's soft colors, the whispering flames, Mrs. Zintz herself, were like dreams of color and flame and woman as they ought to be. Grisil stood in front of the fire, and it was all he could do to keep himself calm and unafraid and respectable. You're too good for me, he said. I was a fool to think I could cozen you but they're expecting me back at the academy for lunch meeting to tell them how much money I got from the philanthropic Mrs. Ince. Oh, must you go? A pity, said Mrs. Ince. I'd so like to see what's under that glamour. Come again, Mr. Grisil. I'll go easier on you next time. Perhaps you'll have something happier to tell them at the academy. Grisil found he could walk away, more firmly with every step. The room behind him would become another flash of memory to be longed for but never possessed, to be thought of when he needed to face the trustees again. But lying to himself was not Grisil's talent, and with every step he felt Mrs. Zintz behind him, ready to welcome him if he would only turn, go to her, bury his face in that soft skin and hair, and want no more.
We need to talk about the new building fund, said the VP Finance. Oh, don't, sighed Grisil. The VP Finance opened his eyes wide. I thought I was going to have to tell you it was that bad, he said. I know my job, said Grisil. It may not seem like it at the moment, but I do. He liked the VP Finance and never tried to charm him. A man needed someone he could go out for a drink with. Grisil and the VP Finance went downtown, far away from the academy and the faculty club. Grisil liked being surrounded by businessmen, grown-ups. He liked the thick linen and heavy silver, the way men's faces were reflected in crystal and china. Unless you have something up your sleeve, we're not going to be able to start the general campaign on schedule, said the VP Finance. He looked around the room as though one of its inhabitants might be the ace up Grisil's sleeve. If you're planning a surprise announcement at the donor's ball, do my ulcers a favor and tell me now. No surprises, said Grisil. The VP Finance sighed. I don't want to tell you your business, but you're going to anyway. They drank in silence for a while. What made you so sure you could get the money this fast? Mrs. Zintz, said Grisil. I thought I could get it all from Mrs. Zintz. Go ahead. Laugh. Why should I laugh? She gives away lots of money. Because she's an enchantress, said Grisil. Why do you think I kept away from her last year? She's better than I am. I got cocky. So she turned you down? She was charming. Too charming. If I go back into that house, I won't come out. Oh, said the VP Finance, and grinned. A mage war. You can't have a war with only two people, Grisil pointed out. And this one's already been fought and lost. The VP Finance looked across the room with a dreamy expression. I'm amazed, he said. Who'd ever have thought Mrs. Zintz was dangerous? That sweet old woman. Grisil looked at his friend and sighed. Mrs. Zintz hosted large parties. Probably every man in the room had been in her house, was in her thrall. She wants me to help her sell dreams, he said. Oh, I can imagine. The legislature's within an inch of declaring her stuff an addictive drug, said the VP Finance. But if she can enchant you, she should be able to handle the legislators. He shook himself. Well, so she's out. You'll just have to work the other donors. I don't know what I want to do, said Grisil. You want to raise the money for this building. After that, you can go work for Mrs. Zintz, if that's what I could work for her now, if that's what I wanted. It's not that simple. The VP Finance spread his hands and creased his round face into a question. So tell me, he said. I want to work for her, said Grisil. But when I am working for her, what's there for me to want? When you've gotten what you want, you're not much of an enchanter anymore. The VP Finance frowned. You get what you want all the time. No, I get what you want. Grisil swept his arm out in a gesture that meant the VP Finance, the Academy, Osith, the world. What I want, I don't go there. I steer clear of that. Doesn't sound like you'd be much use to Mrs. Zintz, then. Oh, I don't know about that. I'd want to please her. She'd want me to keep enchanting people. It could become very complicated, said Grisil. He finished his drink and put the glass down hard. They sat for a few moments looking at the table, and then the VP Finance pushed his own drink over to Grisil. Grisil drank it. Who's the girl in gold? Grisil didn't really want to know. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? 
For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. But she was striking. A girl in a champagne-colored frock with a head full of gold curls. She stood by the window in the Hotel Eleuthera's penthouse ballroom, looking out into the evening light. Was she a donor? Growing disgusted with the Academy as she stood there alone? Or was she from the Academy, neglecting her duties? Grisille didn't care. It was just restful to look at something all gold against a calm autumn evening, all blue. The sun poured in the windows beside her, blocks of glowing air leaning through the glass. Who's the girl in gold? he asked an alumni officer. She craned her neck. Faculty, she said. Magister Hoth from Demonology. Not doing very well, is she? Perhaps I should go talk to her, said Grisille. If faculty came to fundraisers, they were supposed to help raise funds. One demonologist looking superior could undo a lot of Grisille's charm. Although this evening, Grisille had charm to spare. He'd raised a lot of money this evening. People who'd already given to the Academy. People who'd already given all they thought they could afford. People who'd already given all they really could afford. He raised money from them all. The man running the cloakroom had given him a few bills, just to be part of whatever it was that Grisille wanted so much. What Grisille wanted so much was dancing with the VP Finance at the other end of the room. Mrs. Zintz was silver and gray, mysterious as moonlight. He thought she might lose power outside her home, but she was at her most beautiful, and she was flirting with the VP Finance. She whispered to him and laughed a low, charming laugh at his replies. She rested her hand on his sleeve, on his lapel. She leaned her silver head on his bosom when they danced. And the VP Finance gazed over it into the distance with a rapt expression, noble and protective. Grisille looked at the pair and felt his glamour flame. He was beautiful, passionate, inconsolable. What could the donors do, any of them, except give him what little they had? She's a lecher said the alumni officer. What? Magister Hoth. I suppose mere donors are small beer to her after spending her days with incubi. Meow, said Grisille, and they both laughed. Purple shadows were darkening behind the girl in gold, and the last rays of sunlight slanted across the corner of the ballroom to gild her an avid brazen flame yellow. She turned and looked straight into the light, her eyes wide and unafraid. I thought I should let you know, 
No, I shouldn't forget it. A remark like that is effective, even for gaining the attention of a development officer in the middle of a fundraising event. Grasile turned all his glamour toward the speaker. It was Magister Hoth, not as golden as she had been in the sunset. Late at night, under the ballroom's lights, she was the color of pale champagne. What? This is a conflict of interest, she said. Damn. How can we have a conflict of interest? We're here for the same thing. Grasile looked closer and discovered that she was very angry. Some drunken donor had probably groped her or made rude jokes about lechery. He gave her his full attention, the kind that made hardened businessmen reach for their checkbooks. If anything unsuitable has happened, I want it dealt with as much as you do, he said. You can trust me. It doesn't matter whether I can trust you or not, she said. I've called the police. Grasile's habit, whenever moved to shout, What? was to stand perfectly still for a moment and then take two steps back while looking mild and thoughtful. I see, he said gently. What have you called them to do and why? One of your guests is carrying an illegal incubus. I saw it in the washroom. Oh, my goodness, said Grasile. First, are you sure it's illegal? I know what I'm talking about, she said sharply. I'm vice president and a founding member of the Alliance for Ethical Lechery. Keeping an incubus is nothing less than sexual slavery. I'm only telling you about this so we can get this woman arrested with the least disruption. Which woman would that be? asked Grasile. But he already knew. He stood taller as Magister Hoth searched the room. I knew I was as good as any enchanter living, he thought. It took an incubus to charm me. They were among the most powerful demons, those spirits of lust. An enchantress holding an incubus captive, drawing strength from its longings. What would be her limits? And I walked away from her, thought Grasile. She had all that going for her, and I was still able to walk away. Over there, said Hoth, that woman in silver. Grasile looked across the room at the woman in silver. Mrs. Zintz, so beautiful, so powerful, so seductive. He stared for a minute, cataloging her strengths. They made this triumph all the greater. Are the police coming up here? he asked. No, I told them I'd get her down to the front lobby. That will be my job, said Grasile. You did the right thing. I can get her down there without causing a fuss, and we'll have this taken care of before the other guests start to leave. You go down and talk with the police. Give me five minutes. Hoth had barely walked away when Grasile was doing what he'd wanted to do all evening. He cut in on the VP finance and took Mrs. Zintz away. She laughed, a low sound of triumph, shaking in his arms. You never came back, she said. You were entirely too much for me, ma'am said Grasile. May we speak in private? Of course. Not here, said Grasile. Not even on this floor. Mrs. Ince laughed again. I like you, she said. You don't waste my time. I don't have any time to waste myself, said Grasile. He stopped dancing. She took his arm and swayed, slender against his side. She was like a tree in moonlight. When she smiled up at him, she could have been fifty or fifteen, and Grasile could have taken her down the east elevator to the lobby and the police, or the west one, that led to the back parts of the hotel and out into the alley. He walked east and saw all the donors they passed take that catch-of-breath you take when your everyday life snags for a second on something wondrous. Romance didn't end with youth, he saw them thinking. They would have given Grasile more money just for showing them this. Where are we going? Mrs. Zince murmured. To the lobby, said Grasile. He watched the numbers change and felt her leaning on his arm. At floor 25, he had to speak. The police are in the lobby, he said. They're doing some kind of sweep of the district for illegal incubi. Floor 20. 
Floor 18. How interesting, said Mrs. Ince. Do you know I fear I've forgotten my wrap? Floor 10. I thought it was an interesting coincidence, said Gracile, given that you'd called me about it. In fact, I invited the Academy's lecher to this party so we could deal with it properly. You'll be glad to know that she's an expert on illegal incubi. Mrs. Ince was very still, as still as moonlight. Excuse me? It must be very distressing to pay so much for something and then find out it's illegal, he said. You did the right thing in coming to us. The police will have to take your statement about who sold it to you, but you can hand the incubus over to us. I knew you wouldn't want to remain in possession of it any longer than you have to. The floors chimed. Floor three. Mezzanine. My dear boy, you are a challenge after all, said Mrs. Ince. You can't imagine how much I appreciate that. It's lonely to think one is the last. The field has so declined from the days of the great dream lords. Too many of us are mere hirelings nowadays. We waste our talents on the mundane things. The door chimed. Perhaps we can start over, said Gracile. I fear we began on uneven ground. What an intriguing concept, said Mrs. Ince, as if it were a game. I've always viewed enchantment as an art myself. One does the best one can, with whatever comes to hand. The lobby was before them, two men in the black uniforms of Osith police talking to Hoth, and Mrs. Zince was opening her purse and smiling at them all. Mr. Gracile, she said, has been so helpful. I believe this is what you're looking for. Gracile had his first look at the incubus, swirling in a moonstone two inches across. It was beautifully set in silver, an Art Nouveau brooch of sinuous naked bodies and water plants. Both policemen looked at it with respect and apprehension as Patsy Hoth reached out to take it. She closed her hand over the gem, and Gracile realized that she was more beautiful than Mrs. Zince had ever been. I'll have to take it back to the academy, she told the police. The standard procedure is to let it out into a rabbit colony so it can feed. After that, it'll be able to get away on its own. Yeah, I know the drill, said the shorter policeman. He had blonde hair and a ponytail, and a loop of gold chain through one ear. What about this lady? Indicating Mrs. Ince in a way she could not have often been indicated. He might as well have said, this old bag. Mrs. Ince brought the incubus here tonight to hand it over to us, Gracile said. You're just here to witness the formalities. We hardly want to be possessing an illegal incubus ourselves, after all. What? said Hoth, looking up. Gracile turned all his attention towards Mrs. Zince. I'll have them call your car, he said. Excuse me for a moment. Hoth was at his elbow as soon as he walked toward the bellman's desk. You're letting her go! You heard her story, he said. You saw her give up the incubus. We don't have a leg to stand on. Oh, sure. And she has enough money to buy the academy. If you don't like donors, keep out of development. Your car is coming around, said Gracile, turning back to Mrs. Ince. The open door sucked all three of them out into the night, toward the waiting car. He didn't want to see her go, to have this victory ended. Mrs. Ince smiled at him, gracious in defeat. Never imagine, she said, that I don't appreciate what you've done for me tonight. She reached out to pat his sleeve in farewell. She still was a lovely old lady, a wise woman, silk and velvet, even without the incubus. Something shone in the air in front of him, a sparkle of powder, and he heard Hoth yell, saw her drop the gem as it burst into a dazzle. When his vision cleared, Mrs. Zince was gone. Tail lights at the corner might have been her car. Might not. What is it? Gracile picked up the brooch. Its stone was moon-colored, the rainbow glints gone. He offered it to Hoth, but she ignored him and clutched her hands to her middle. She let it out, she groaned. She doubled over and cried out, a harsh sound he had never heard before. Are you all right? 
How far is the hospital? Grasil asked. No, gasped Hoth. No hospital. I'm fine. Grasil put a hand on her arm and gasped himself. It was nothing he'd ever felt before when they touched pure desire that almost shut off the mind. He felt his glamour flare again. He was beautiful, powerful, invincible. If I'd felt like that a minute ago, Mrs. Zince would have funded the whole building, he thought. And at that moment, a cab pulled up. Get in, he said, pushing Hoth down into the cab's back seat. And she pulled him after her, clutched his coat, rubbed against him. Uh, where to? asked the cab driver, turning half around. You just want me to drive? Get out of here, said Grasil. Around the block, anywhere. He turned back to Hoth, and she pulled his head down and kissed him. He kissed back, and the cab turned a sharp corner and they slipped apart. The desire diluted as quickly as it had come. What is this? he asked, and Hoth laughed up at him. She was a pale blur, half lying across the seat. They passed a streetlight, and it lit up her face, excited and shining. Sex, she said. It's called sex! But it isn't real, said Grasil, bracing himself against the back of the driver's seat. Hoth laughed again and reached up, putting a hand on the back of his neck. He felt her fingernails brush the short ends of hair, her fingers opening and the warm part of her hand touching his skin, and then that power was filling him again, and the delight of using it was the only thing that mattered. It must have been twenty years since Grasil had looked at his true face. He knew he had done it when his last classmate retired. He looked at the beginning of old age then, and sworn at it, and thought about things he wanted until his glamour was strong enough to cover that face. Ever since, he had put the glamour on in bed before getting up. But this morning he was in bed with a woman, a golden woman lying too close for him to see clearly, and he could not call up any longing, could not think of anything he wanted to change. He felt his sunken cheeks, pinched them up into bristly folds. She'll never sleep with you again if she sees your real face, he thought. She'll hate you. But the folds didn't tighten under his fingers, and then he was afraid, cold sweat afraid, of... He didn't know what. Grisil snuck out of his own bed, silent as a schoolboy creeping out before breakfast. His bare feet knew every crack in the floor and every shift in the pattern of sunlight and shadow that carpeted the hall under the window. He looked out into the golden elm, his heart bouncing in his chest, just as a swirl of leaves spun down from it. They said you could see the dryad of the tree in such a whirlwind of leaves. They said you could rush into the eddy and clasp it to yourself. Grisil watched it fall to the ground, choking down thought and panic, and went on to the bathroom. This was himself, this stranger looking out of his mirror. Beneath his glamour he had grown old. Gray hair and stubble, lines, the deep creases around eyes and mouth that puzzle whoever looks at the old man. What expressions do they echo? Was this a man who smiled or scowled? Impossible to tell what this face had been doing hidden away by itself. Its eyes were washed out, its skin tough and bristly. As he squinted at himself in the mirror, wondering whether it was blurred by mist or farsightedness, the bathroom door opened. Living alone, he never locked it. Patsy Hoth walked in. I, oh, she said, shocked twice, by walking in on someone and by what she had walked in on. Excuse me, and she was gone. Wait, said Grisil, and looked into the mirror again just for a second, seeing what she must have seen in that second. Old decrepit, a geezer. He pulled the door open, acting faster than he could think, and what he said almost surprised him. You must be Will's friend, he said, and Hoth's retreating back stopped. I'm his father, said Grisil. Bill Sr. He doesn't usually bring women home, said Grisil. You're the first in, oh, years. I was still living with his mother then. She was still alive.
He had never said such a thing before. The public Grisil was a bachelor, with a hint of mysterious heartbreak in his past. I'm sorry, said Hoth. Don't be. That was a long time ago. But how about you? Are you and Will serious? Us? No, said Hoth. It was an accident. An incubus. She looked into her coffee. It was my own fault, she said. If I'd had my field kit, I could have let it out with no harm done. You didn't take your field kit to a donor's ball? What were you thinking of? chafed Cresile. It was morning outside, bright and merry, slipping carelessly away into day. He ate bacon and eggs and to hell with his cholesterol. Is your family from Osith? she asked, and again Grisil had that strange feeling, the disorientation of having to make up a new life. No, he said. I was born in the country outside Salanto. We moved here after the war. He said this delicately, not sure it would hold his weight, but it did. It was the truth, after all. The truth! He could tell her about his real life, he thought suddenly. The things that had meant so much to him, the farm, the family, growing up, the war, his wife. All the things that had never happened to Will, that a man in his forties could never admit to knowing. He found himself talking, babbling like any lonely old man, like an old man who jumped off a cliff, who needed to say all he knew before he hit bottom. She listened, drinking coffee, and he couldn't tell whether she was interested or polite, and he didn't care. You remind me of a girl I met in the war, he said. She had a head of curls like that, and I think she was magic as well, because she never got hurt. The whole village was bombed away except their one house. He sighed. Ah, I've had a full life. It's Will I worry about. He hardly ever meets a nice girl. I'm a lecher, said Hoth. I have to be a nice girl. If you give them an inch, the lab gets out of control. So I don't carry on affairs. It's too bad. We hardly even know each other. It was just an accident. Most magicians, said Grisil, won't hang around with enchanters. I don't see why not. These distinctions are stupid. But, well, I would always wonder if I was being charmed. Grisil leaned forward, propped his bristly chin in his shaky hands. Do you drink? Do you worry you might get intoxicated? It's not quite the same. It is. The world, it's always moving, said Grisil. You can hold on and try to keep everything under control, or you can let go and fly with it. You kids have never had a war. Things pick you up and take you with them. That's what life really is. Not this sitting in one spot like a barnacle. What happened to the girl in the house? asked Hoth, changing the subject. Eh? You were just telling me. The house that didn't get bombed. Grisil told her the rest of his story about war, cold and muddy, and one house standing untouched among ruins. He told her about how warmth and light feel to a man coming in from war, and about the way song can rise up around a blue plate on the mantelpiece, and how beautiful a woman is when she gets up barefoot at midnight, wrapped in a ragged sheet, when she leans against a doorframe and looks at a dead land and says, Nothing ever really ends. The important things go on. Hoth listened like a child, forgetting her coffee. But what happened to her? I told you. The important things don't end. Hoth sighed, and then sharpened. Was that enchantment? Are you putting a spell on me? Not that I know of, said Grisil dryly, and I think I would know. He had meant to send her off by herself in a cab, but they were friends by then. They rode downtown together and said goodbye at the Hotel Eleuthera. He put his thin old arms around her and gave her a father's kiss on the hair. Will should be home by midnight, he said. Call him. 
Don't get your hopes up, she said. He didn't even leave a note. I'll give him hell, said Gracile. I didn't bring him up to act like that. As soon as she was gone into the parking garage, he went into a florist's. He had roses and a note sent to her office. I must want something to come of this, he thought. But the face that looked back from the cooler doors was still an old man's. Gracile spent the day in open spaces around Osif, not afraid of being recognized. He watched birds and beasts, sat in West Park looking out of the edge of the plateau, walked along the ley line where it ran toward the academy, overgrown with hawthorn, alder, fairy rings, and mandrake. He walked for miles until he wanted to sit down, wanted dinner, wanted a beer, and to go home and find someone waiting for him, waiting to hear his stories. At the outskirts of the academy, he looked into a window and saw an echo of his younger self and headed into his office. A package came for you, said his secretary. A package too small for flyers or promotional videotapes. A package the size to hold jewelry. And even before he touched it, he felt Mrs. Zint's breath on it. A package full of wonders. A package of treasure, of longings. For what greater treasure is there, Gracile thought, as he stood over the open box. What greater treasure is there than the dream of treasure? He touched it with one finger. Absurd. Such caution for a tiny piece of silver and felt the trapped spirit's hunger surge through him. And in that instant, the old man was gone. He had spent one day in the open, one day looking at the world without longing and letting it look at him, and now he was gone. He was put away with all his memories, closed away as firmly as the box in Gracile's pocket. Gracile stood at the window, looking at the academy lit from one side, shadows pooling between the buildings, with his own silhouette laid over them all, as solid and unchanging as any of them. He looked for a long time, until the campus lights came on below and he could see himself clearly in the glass, watching unchanged as suns and seasons faded away, and then he went back to his desk. He set the box on his blotter and put away the note in wrapping paper in a desk drawer, and then he picked up the phone and dialed. Magister Haas Lab, said a student voice. She's uh, not in. May I take a message? This is William Harrison Gracile, he said. Tell her Mrs. Zintz has sent another incubus for her to release. And tell her, tell her my father would like to see her again. We'll leave it at this, dear listeners. Pat has had a long career as a student and a teacher, including a six-year stint as a dean at a small Midwestern college, and believes in writing what you know. Makes one wonder what she had to do to get a new humanities building funded. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page, or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners, and we want to know your thoughts on our content. If you enjoyed the story or any of the dozens of other stories we've offered over the past two years, please consider visiting our Patreon page and making a donation. It helps keep the servers going, and every little bit gets us closer to being able to pay authors for exclusive, unpublished content. The link is on our website. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you can't change it and you cannot sell it. Be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will be placed on academic probation, which is what we call the dungeon. That's all from me for this week. I'm going to go and find myself a beverage. I'll see you next time. Bye now.
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.